Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. How are you? All right, let's go. Romans chapter 3 is where we left off last week, and we find ourselves at verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, as always, we'd love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in the rack and the chair in front of you. Keep that Bible if you don't own one. Let let that be our gift to you, and you can find Romans chapter 3. Uh, on one of the pages that's listed there on the screen, depending on what, but same version of the Bible, just two different printings of it. That's why there's two page numbers. Again, keep that Bible as our gift to you. We are working our way through the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, and we've been in this letter for a few months, and in particular for the past few weeks, about seven or eight weeks, we've been dwelling on Romans 1 and 2 and the first part of chapter 3, in which Paul is indicting all of humanity, every single person, about their guilt before a holy God. And this morning, on this Palm Sunday, we come to verse 21 of Romans chapter 3, and we're going to read from verses 21 through 26. Today, we're just going to look at really verse 21 and 22, a little bit of 23. We're going to spend a few weeks here just basking in the glory and the joy and the good news of this paragraph. This morning, we're going to start it off, but I want you to know that this is one of those pivotal places in all of the Bible that is a turning point. It's one of the most critical and clear and concise, compact explanations of what the whole Bible is about here in one paragraph. And it is glorious good news, especially in, light of, especially in light of the past few weeks that we've been dwelling on mankind and his fallenness and his need before God. And so today, in God's kindness, we'll be here on this Palm Sunday. And then as the Holy Spirit has, has ordained it, uh, on Easter Sunday, we'll be drilling down on verse 24 and 25 and looking at just this beautiful idea of Christ's work on the cross. Let me read Romans 3, verses 21 through 26, and I'll pray, and then we're going to look back at a few verses, and again, we'll be in this paragraph for the next couple of weeks. This is what the Apostle Paul writes to this church in Rome. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us understand this, this beautiful text. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that 
as you have written your word through the hands of men and this particular passage through the hands of the Apostle Paul, I pray that your holy, completely true, divinely inspired, without air, authoritative word, that your Holy Spirit would come along your word and do wonderful things in this room this morning. May believers in this room be refreshed and convicted and exhorted and may their hearts be warmed again with the glory of the gospel. May we apply it to our lives so that it would touch down into the very battles that we still face and it would help us to fight sin and glorify you. And for my friends in this room who are not yet trusting in Jesus, Lord, would you, by your sovereign grace, open their eyes to see the beauty of the good news that is so clearly articulated in these words. And on that note, Lord, would you help me, a broken and very much in process person to be a, a channel and a vessel of your good news to these people that I love very much this morning. Blow through this room, this sanctuary, like a mighty rushing wind and do your work for your glory and the joy of your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen, amen. So we begin this paragraph for the next few weeks and this paragraph is the clearest, I think, articulation of what many consider to be one of the most important doctrines, sets of truths, or really truths in the whole Christian faith. The doctrine of how mankind is justified or made right by faith alone, in Christ alone, by the grace of God alone, for the glory of God alone. The justification of sinners by faith in Christ alone. That truth, that doctrine of the Bible, some have in the history of the church said is the most important truth really of all in the scriptures, in a sense. Of course, all God's truth is important. But in fact, Luther, the great reformer of the Protestant Reformation, said that this article, this particular aspect of the truth of the Bible, how sinful people can be made right with God, not by their own works, but by the work of Christ and the faith that he gives them to put their hope in him, justification by faith alone. He says that it is the article or the point of truth upon which the whole church stands or falls. In other words, if a Christian or a church understands this rightly, they get the Christian faith. If they don't understand this rightly, they don't get the Christian faith. That's, that's weighty. Calvin, the great theologian of the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin said that this is the hinge upon which the whole Bible turns. In fact, he says that this, this paragraph right here is the very hinge that illuminates for us the doctrine of how unrighteous people can be made right with a holy God. And then a more contemporary theologian, James Packer, a British theologian who's now in his early 90s, he likened this passage and this doctrine of justification by faith alone to be like Atlas. And this doctrine is like carrying the weight of the Bible on its shoulders. Now these are huge words by super, super smart people. And it should cause us to stare at this passage, I think, with reverence and, and sobriety. 
So here's my plan. We're going to work our way through just piecemeal, in particular, verse 21. And today, before we get into the meat of this passage, which we'll do next week on Easter Sunday, I want us to do a little bit of what's called biblical theology. Now, of course, all theology, in a sense, we should clearly be biblical. But when we use the phrase biblical theology, I'm meaning I want us to see how the whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is tied together as one unified message. Maybe, maybe you grew up with this understanding, or maybe you still have this understanding, this, I think, faulty understanding now, which is prevalent amongst many Christians, that the Old Testament is kind of a of, a, of a, a, a group of stories that we can learn some moral lessons by, but God is basically angry, and thank God we didn't live in that time. And now, praise God, we live in this New Testament era where God seems to be more merciful and gracious. And well, how do we kind of cause these two things to, to fit together? Well, I want us to see today that actually the Bible is one unified story that centers on the person and work of God the Son, Jesus Christ, and all of it is for the glory of God and should be a great encouragement for us today. So let's look at verse 21 again, and we're just going to work piecemeal through this verse, and then we'll very briefly summarize it by applying three truths to our hearts. And then, praise God, we have the privilege of seeing three folks from Crosspoint be baptized and proclaim the gospel through water baptism. Those first two words... But now, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher of the mid-1900s, said that these are two of the sweetest words in the whole Bible. This word, but, is a conjunction, right? No, I've told you this before, my mom was an English teacher, and I grew up in the 70s when they only had cartoons on Saturday mornings, and I'm bitter about that, but. The greatest cartoon of all was, you know, when I'm, where I'm going, Schoolhouse Rock, right? Where you learned grammar and about the government. Remember that I'm just a bill sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, my favorite song of all I've done it here before, Conjunction Junction, What's Your Function, right? Okay. You guys watch, no, no, you don't want me to sing it. You guys watch TV back in the 70s too. The word but is a conjunction. It's a word bridge that joins two ideas. And here's what's interesting about the word but, is it's, it's a conjunction that joins two truths, two thoughts, but oftentimes with this particular conjunction, but, the thing that comes after the word bridge, but, is more powerful than the thing that comes before it. Both things are true, but it's connecting two ideas, the second of which always overrules the first. So here's an example. It has been my dream, and this is true, this is really true, it has always been my dream to be the quarterback of the San Diego Chargers. I grew up about an hour and a half from San Diego along the Mexican border. When I was very young, my dad took me to my first Charger game when Dan Fouts was the quarterback. We got there early, and I got to watch him warm up, and there was just something magical about the way that the ball came off of his hands, and he was throwing it to Kellen Winslow and J.J. Jefferson, and I was enthralled with the beauty of the NFL stadium, and I said, that's what I want to be. In fact, that's not what I want to be. It's still what I want to be. I am a 46-year-old man wishing that I could be the quarterback of the San Diego, actually now, Los Angeles Chargers. That's true. 
but <laughs> I'm 5'10", don't have a very good arm, slow, weak, and really not a very good athlete. <laughs> Both of those things are true, do you see that? But the second overrides the previous. And this here forms a word bridge. What does he say? He says, but now... The righteousness of God has been manifested. That's the next little piece that we need to stare at. This is a transition in this letter. It's really a a transition in the whole Bible. And to understand and to see the logic of Paul's flow of thought here, we need to understand what has come before. Now, I know that for the past few weeks, we've been looking at and staring at Paul's case against sinful humanity halfway through Romans 1 and into Romans 2 and halfway through Romans 3. But we also need to look at the whole message of Romans up to this point. If you go back to Romans 1, just flip with your Bible, just, just one page over to Romans 1. At the beginning of Romans 1, Paul opens with some greetings and he's mentioning to the church the reason for him writing this letter. He's, he's giving them his credentials to be an apostle. He's telling them that he wants to come visit them. And then in verses 16 and 17 of Romans chapter 1, he states his purpose. It's really the purpose for the whole letter. He says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That's what that word gospel means, the good news, the proclamation, the declaration of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God revealed from faith to faith. How he's going to save sinners. It's the power of God for salvation for the Jew first and also the Greek. And then in verse 17, he says that, for in it, meaning the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And remember when we were in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17, we remembered that Luther, uh, Martin Luther, back in the 1500s, when he read this verse as a Catholic monk, he was tormented by this verse. He was reading that phrase, the righteousness of God, as if it was the character and righteousness and just wrath of God, which clearly many times, that's what that phrase means. But he saw that in the context of Paul's letter, what Paul meant in this sense in Romans 1 verse 17 is not the righteousness of God by meaning his character and his holiness. That's always true. But he's talking about in Romans 1 verse 17, not the righteousness that God is, but the righteousness that God provides to those that he saves. And on that realization, Everything turned for Luther. Now God was not a tyrant to be feared alone, only in his justice and his holiness, but a savior who saved people and gave them what he required of them. And so Romans 1 verse 17 is this high point in early on in the letter. And then you'd think he'd get into explaining how the righteousness of God is provided to mankind. But he stops and pivots at verse 18 of Romans 1. And then he spends about two chapters talking about how no man, no person, Jew or Gentile, is righteous before God. So God is righteous and he provides righteousness. And then for two chapters, he talks about the sinfulness of man, about how the wrath of God is revealed. And so nobody is worthy of this righteousness. Now in verse 21 of chapter three in our text, he picks back up the theme of Romans, of the righteousness of God. And he says, okay, God is righteous 
and he provides righteousness. The good news of the gospel is that he gives righteousness. Two chapters, but nobody's worthy of this righteousness. Nobody. It's not like anybody earns this righteousness in and of themselves. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God, the righteousness that God provides is here. It's come. And it is revealed. It's manifested. The greatest need of every person is to be made right with their creator. The one true holy God. Before we continue, just let's just make a little, let's just do a little application of our own heart. Right now, I don't know why you came to church this morning. Maybe you've been here for a long time. Maybe you're even a member of this church. You're trusting in Christ. Maybe you are here for the first time. Somebody invited you and you're not exactly sure what this is all about. And, and you're thinking, you know, our motivations are mixed in every situation to some degree. And you may be thinking about all of the needs that you have in your life right now. And all of those may be legitimate. But I want us to just make a mental list of what we consider to be our greatest need right now. Maybe it's, a, maybe it's something very important. Maybe it's some health need. Maybe it's some uh, relational thing. Maybe it's some financial need. Who, who, all those things are, are, are very true and very real. But those things, as important as they can be, can cloud out the true and greatest need of every human being, and that is to be made right with a holy God. And that's the message of Romans. How will unrighteous sinners, that's Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, we've been staring at that for eight weeks, how will these unrighteous sinners be made right with a holy God? How will he save them? And Paul's answer begins here in verse 21. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That's the next phrase. So God is going to make sinners righteous, but he's going to do it apart from the law, apart from this Old Testament law that he has given us. So what's Paul saying there? He's saying, in other words... The righteousness, the making righteous of sinful people who are not righteous in and of themselves is going to happen not through adherence to the Old Testament law, not through them and their performance and their own works, but by God's work alone. In fact, just ahead, uh, uh, last week we ended on verse 20 of chapter 3, and he, he even states that outright. He says that in verse 20, look up at Romans 3, verse 24, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So nobody, nobody's made right by the law. But let's not just apply that to the Old Testament written law, because you may be thinking, Brad, I, I didn't grow up Jewish, I didn't even really grow up religious, and so I've never really been hindered by this idea that I have to obey some moral religious law, well, I would, I would push in on you a little bit there and say, I, actually, I think this is the way all of the world lives, whether they are religious or irreligious. It's something that's woven into the fabric of every human soul, and it's this idea that we try and justify ourselves as being acceptable, whether it's before our notion of God, or whether it's just before this sort of law of karma that we think governs the universe. All people, to some degree, by nature, try and make themselves right by their law-abiding, whether that law is Christian scripture, or whether that law is just this force that they think governs the universe. All of us 
compare ourselves by nature, try and make ourselves right, consider ourselves better than others to some degree or whatever, or morally acceptable by some law, whether written on tablets of stone in a Bible or on our hearts. And Paul is saying that right standing with God does not come through the law. Let's just pause here and say, well, what purpose then does the Old Testament law have? We just kind of throw it all aside. Jesus says some really interesting things in the Sermon on the Mount. He says that, that I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And listen to what Martin Luther says to, to kind of illuminate this point in his commentary on Galatians. I think this is very helpful. This is how we should think of the Old Testament law. And we'll talk much more about it as we work our way through Romans, which brings up the relationship of the New Testament Christian with the Old Testament law, which is rich and deep and, and beautiful. And I think we'll see that as we progress. This is what Martin Luther said. He said, the principal point of the law is to make men not better, but worse. That is to say, it shows unto them their sin, that by the knowledge thereof they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken, and by this means may be driven to seek grace, and so come to see that blessed seed, which is Christ. So when the Old Testament people of Israel were trying to obey the law, the law was never meant to actually be a means by which they were saved. It was meant to be a display of the holiness of God to display to them his character. It was also meant to be a way that God's people lived differently than the nations around them so that the nations around them would see that these people are striving for holiness to God. But ultimately, the law is meant to bring God's people not to a place of pride to say that we are better than other people, but it was meant to bring them to a place of despair so that they would realize that there's something in their hearts by nature, this sin that has infected all people, that we cannot obey God, so we must look outside of ourselves for that right standing before God. In other words, the law was a kind of preparatory schoolmaster. It was a, a tutor that was meant to push us outside of ourselves to look beyond ourselves to the one and the only true one, Jesus, who can obey the law for us. So even now, as we read the Old Testament, and it is March, and maybe you're in a Bible reading plan, and you're slogging through Exodus or Leviticus, and you're just like, oh man, sacrifices, bulls and goats and birds. What, what am I to make of this? We're to get a picture of the holiness of God. We get a picture of how we can never truly do enough to appease God. And the law, as glorious as it is and was, was ultimately meant to produce in us failure so that it would drive us to Christ. That's what Luther says. And so this salvation comes apart from the law, but the law had its purpose to bring about this righteousness, to push us to the one who can make us righteous. But then he says, look at the next phrase, but the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So all of this Old Testament, this is where I want us to do some, some connecting of the Bible together, and then we'll end with this and get into three truths. I want us to see how the whole message of the Bible flows together. 
What Paul is saying here is that this good news of the gospel, that Jesus has come and provided righteousness for people, the righteous for the unrighteous, is not something new, but this has been God's plan from the beginning. So we're going to take a little tour very quickly through the Old Testament. Genesis chapter 3, it'll be up on the screen if you don't want to flip in the third chapter of the Bible. Right after the fall of Adam and Eve, God speaks to the devil, the serpent in the garden, and he gives a shadow of the gospel, the good news to come. And he says to the serpent in Genesis 3, 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, meaning those who are in the flesh, demons and the sinful world, and her offspring, meaning ultimately Christ and his people. He Speaking, again, as a foreshadowance of this offspring, this child, who ultimately is Jesus, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So here in Genesis 3, right after the fall, we have this kind of foreshadowing that God will bring an offspring, a child that will crush. We, see, we read later on in Romans, it actually gets even deeper. It says he will crush the head of the serpent. And so then God chooses a man named Abraham, and he says, go to Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3. Mankind is starting to populate the earth, and all of mankind is sinful because they're all inheriting the nature of their sinful parents, Adam and Eve, who have disobeyed God and are now now excommunicated from the garden and God starts to implement his plan of redemption. And in Exodus chapter 12, verses one through three, he picks this man, Abram, out of all of the peoples of the earth, not because Abraham was good, but simply because God was gracious. And it says in verse one, now the Lord said to Abram, who later would become Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And later on, we won't take the time to read it, but in Genesis chapter 15, God says, I'm going to give you offspring, and through your offspring I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. So God has taken sinful humanity chosen one man out of that human race that has fallen and says, I'm going to make a people through you. I'm going to give you an offspring. And through you, I am going to bless all the peoples of the earth. But we're wondering, as we begin to continue to read Genesis, how is this going to happen? Because Abraham's family doesn't look like the type of family that will bless the world. In fact, they look a lot more like a family that would show up on like a daytime show, one of those Jerry Springer shows. That's the type of family they resemble. Crazy cats. And so you're wondering, how, how is this going to happen? And eventually God gives this family, Israel, that becomes a nation, a law. Remember this law that talked about how they should approach him and how they should rightly worship him. And this law, again, is displaying and showing and illuminating their sinfulness and highlighting God's holiness with the intent that it would push these people to not look to themselves for their right standing with God, but to him. And then in, in Exodus chapter 34, just skip ahead to there, Exodus 34, we see this incredible sort of riddle. 
in the Old Testament that gives us a kind of clue of like, how is God going to do this? This is after God has given the law, after God has redeemed um, his people from Egypt when they were in captivity at the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. And now God is speaking to Moses towards the end of his day. And in Exodus chapter 36, 34, verse 6, the Lord says this to Moses. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Listen to verse 7, the first half of it. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, so we, we got to see what's going on here in verse 7. He says that God is going to forgive iniquity, but he's by no means going to clear the guilty. How is that going to happen? Because when I read the Old Testament, it seems like everybody's guilty. And then when I read Romans 1, 2, and 3 up to this point, have you gotten anything out of the last eight weeks other than the fact that we are all by nature guilty? So how is God going to maintain his holiness and his justice and forgive people who by their nature can do nothing to make themselves forgivable. That's the riddle, that's the dilemma of the Old Testament. That's the thing that we're supposed to see, and when we see that, it will push us to this answer that will come, as he has said in Romans 3, apart from the law, and it's Jesus. One more little Old Testament passage that I want us to see that it will prepare us for Easter and prepare us for the seeing Christ in the Old Testament as a kind of shadow in Leviticus chapter 16, which is this great explanation of the day of atonement, this day, this once a year day that the priests of God's people, as they were wandering around in the desert as nomads in tents, that were to approach God as sinful people to bring sacrifices as prescribed by the law to make atonement, in other words, to make right, to reconcile themselves to God for that year for their sin. And this, this, this occasion of the Day of Atonement is a kind of picture of what Jesus will do on the cross. Listen to Leviticus chapter 16. Verse 1, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of two sons of Aaron when they drew near before the Lord and died. So a couple chapters earlier in Leviticus chapter 10, there were these two sons of the priest of Aaron who came before the Lord in a haphazard way. They offered what's called unauthorized fire, whatever that is, and God, he, he smoked them. He dropped them dead right there. In fact, fire from heaven came and consumed them. Because they were coming to God in a sort of haphazard way. Again, giving us a picture of the holiness of God. So God is serious about how his people can approach. How can sinful man approach a holy God? And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. In other words, don't just come bebopping up in this mug. For those, I know we got a lot of West Point graduates here, young lieutenants getting lost in the woods at Ibolic and Ranger School right now. 
Do you remember our day reporting to the cadet in the red sash? Your first day at West Point? And they're there to break you down and make you feel like a complete knucklehead because that's exactly what you are. And there was a prescription of how you are to... Sir, new cadet evangelista reports for the first time as ordered to the cadet in the red sash or something along those lines. And it's amazing how hard it is to just get that one sentence out when you are just nervous and you're 18 years old and you got dropped off by a bus and somebody shaved your head and they're yelling at you. (laughs) Took me about 15 minutes to get that sentence out. My first day at West Point on June 28th, 1989. (laughs) Sir, new, forgot my own name. Don't just come bebopping up in here. God has prescribed a way to come to him because he's the holy, righteous God of the universe. That's the point of Romans. And it's foreshadowed here. Come before my mercy seat that is on the ark, verse 2, so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, as I prescribe, Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And I'm reading all of this just to give you a sense of the detail by which God commands his people to approach him. Verse 5, and he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Aaron, as the Old Testament priest, is kind of pre-shadowing Christ, who's the new priest of the new covenant. But here's the difference. Jesus doesn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sins because he's sinless, praise God. Verse 7, then he shall take two goats and set before them, them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel, which is a place that we'll see in a second is where they're going to send this scapegoat to. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. And Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. Again, Jesus didn't need to do that. And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small. And he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side and in the front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Friends, notice the meticulous nature of the instruction that God is giving these priests by which they can even approach him. All of that is meant to impress upon us the holiness that we should have and the reverence that we should have when we approach a holy God. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. Atonement meaning this word, this, this, this sacrifice of 
peace, this, this, this substitutionary sacrifice to appease God. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around and he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. Verse 20. And when he has made an end of, a, the, of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. So we've been talking about the bull that he sacrificed for his own sin and then the goat that he sacrifices for the people of Israel, their sins. Now there's another goat that was mentioned. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. And verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in his in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. That's where we get the phrase scapegoat from. So you see, you have this bull for his own sin. Jesus has no need to offer any sacrifice for his own sin because he's perfect. But Jesus in the New Testament is the picture of not only the lamb that was slain for the sins of all of his people, but he also is a picture of the other goat that carries the sins away into the wilderness. So Jesus dies to appease God's wrath, but better than that, he also takes our sin and he carries it away. Let me show you in Hebrews chapter 10. Go to Hebrews and, or just see it on the screen. Just take it in. Hebrews, look at what Jesus has done. This, friends, this is what Paul is saying is the righteousness that comes apart from the law, but is the righteousness that the law was pointing to, which is Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the law was never intended to fully and finally save. It was merely meant to be a shadow of the one that the law was pointing to, which was Jesus. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You know, I was wondering as I was reading Leviticus 17, this thought came to me years ago. First time I read it, the scapegoat guy, what a job that is. Because we, we've, seen that bull, we've seen that bull and that goat be killed, and then some dude has to put... After Aaron transfers the sin on the scapegoat, and then you got to lead that goat out, what if that goat starts wandering back into the camp? Whoa, 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 whoa. Get, take that away. Get that goat out of here. But here's the problem. Even if that goat stays out in the woods and is taking the sins away, guess what happens next year? We need to do it again because we sin again. 
But Jesus here in Hebrews 10 takes away our sins once and for all. Go to verse 12 of Hebrews 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, in other words, he didn't need to do it year after year because he's holy, he's God himself, he satisfies the holiness of God, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by, verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole lot in verse 14. That's another sermon, and you only need one today. But do, do, you see, do you see the Bible fitting together? The Old Testament is not some grumpy God who's mean. The Old Testament is a holy, merciful God who is creating this system of sacrifice and law to be a picture, to prepare the world, to prepare his people so that they will look away from themselves and look to the reality that the shadow is pointing to, which is Christ, who is the true and perfect and better Lamb of God, who finally takes away our sin and takes away the guilt that is before us. The whole Bible is pointing to Jesus. And then in verse 22 and 23, we'll just read it quickly and then conclude the righteousness of God. All of this has been pointing to the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Three quick truths. I'm just going to read them and then we're going to see these friends be baptized. One, In Jesus, the wrath and grace of God meet. The riddle has been solved. How will God, a holy and righteous God, who cannot fudge his holiness, who cannot grade on a curve, who must by his nature maintain his holiness, How will he forgive people who can do nothing to make themselves forgivable? He will actually provide the sacrifice for their forgiveness, which is his son. And on the cross, Jesus in his holy, sinless, righteous life bears the wrath of God and it's satisfied and he turns it into the grace of God. Friends, that's the Christian message. That's the only way by trusting in what Jesus has done on the cross, this righteousness that comes apart from the law that a person can be made right with God. Friends, if you are not a Christian or you came in confused or cloudy about what it means to be a Christian, friends, that is it. You must stop trusting in yourself and trying to justify yourself by your goodness or morality or some law and look to the cross, look to Jesus where the holiness of God and the grace of God meet. Secondly, God has had a plan from the beginning. Therefore, he can be trusted. Notice that this is not a, 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 a plan B. It's not like mankind fell and then God scrambled and said, okay, Jesus, you go down, Holy Spirit, you make some things happen and then we'll kind of figure out how we're going to save sinful man. The Bible says in many places that Jesus was the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. 
In fact, in Ephesians 1, we won't take time to read it, but it says that God put forward this plan of redemption before the foundations of the earth. And he chose a people for himself that he would move upon and open their dead hearts and give them the very things that he would require of them so that he could be glorified. Friends, the point is, is that as we live in a chaotic world that seems like it is spinning out of control, God is in complete control of human history. And he can be trusted. And he has broken into human history at just the right time, but now. And thirdly and finally, the Bible is radically God-centered. And this is good for us. This is so good for us. I think most people by nature, by default, come to the Bible asking, what can religion or God or the Bible do for me? How can I improve my life? I've had a rough time of it. My marriage is in trouble. Things are not good for me on the job, whatever. I'm going to try God out. And certainly God uses circumstances to push us to himself. But when we come to God or the Bible asking by default, what, what can I get out of this? I think we need to see that it doesn't work that way. Remember, what's the greatest need of every human being? It's not that we would have some secondary issue settled. It would be that we would be made right with a holy God. The gospel is the God-centered news of what God has done to make sinners right with himself while also maintaining his holiness all to the praise of his glorious grace. And the way God works is he makes people right and he pours out his blessings on them, which may mean goodness here in this life, or it may mean continued trial and difficulty so that as we have been made right with a holy God for eternity, we see the surpassing worth of trusting in Jesus and we become an example as God leaves us in a difficult situation so that the world around us sees that Jesus is better than anything this dying, fading world has to offer. Friends, that's the Christian life. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifest, manifested apart from the law. And it's found in Christ alone. Let me pray and see these friends be baptized. Lord, thank you for these words. For this beautiful paragraph that we will bask in for the next few weeks. May we see the radical God-centeredness of the whole message of the Bible. May we gaze afresh at the cross where wrath and grace meet and may we be buoyed and fortified and strengthened knowing that you are in complete control of human history and our own very lives Lord thank you for this good news and as we see this good news be proclaimed through baptism and the testimonies read of these three friends May our hearts be strengthened and encouraged, all for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.